Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. We've come to the end of the first week of Dr. John Newfeld's series, The King Goes Public, and today we'll be focusing on the temptations that Jesus faced in Matthew chapter 4. So let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld as we turn to Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Today we're going to be talking about the temptations of Christ, and in so doing, we will talk about our own temptations as well. This is a legitimate approach to studying Christ's temptations because Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So even though the temptations of Christ are in some ways unique to him, as is the mission the Father gave to the Son, and yet so much of what he experienced is common to all of us, we face the same things. We should read the account of Christ's temptations with great interest and take it very personally. Oscar Wilde once said, I can resist anything except temptation. How many of us can identify with that? One Christian, paraphrasing the Lord's Prayer, prayed, Lead me not into temptation. I can find it on my own. How many of us can identify with that? Let me ask one more question. What do you think are your greatest temptations? It's quite likely that if you think about this, you'll come up with a list of the obvious ones, what we might call the large, recognizable stop signs we might want to violate. $100 bill falls out of someone's pocket. You tell them, or do you just pick it up? An opportunity to view porn is before you. Do you click or do you pass it by? Your boss tells you he will not be checking the expense accounts. You want to make an impression so you feel tempted to exaggerate your story or even make up a few details. You have an opportunity to claim credit for something someone else did. You're frustrated when someone cuts you off in traffic and you feel like breaking out into profanity. You're angry and you feel like striking someone maybe even your wife or kids. Where are you most tempted? Today, I think this may surprise some of us. We will discover that the greatest temptations we face are not those big red stop signs, but something much more subtle. And these more subtle things that may not even be recognized for what they are, are in fact the greatest threat that we have ever faced in our spiritual lives. They are the very things Christ himself faced. So let's read Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Before Jesus began his public ministry, according to verse 1, it is the Holy Spirit who led him into the Judean wilderness, a place which was normally hot, barren, with very little else except rocks and sand. 
We remember that at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit came to rest on him. That indicated that Jesus had submitted to the will of the Father and that he would be both empowered by the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit. So immediately after his baptism, he demonstrates his willingness to be led, and he is led to a place where he is by himself. It may seem completely logical that the Holy Spirit would lead Jesus there because we know that he will spend 40 days in fasting. He will no doubt drink water, but he will not eat, and he spends the time in prayer. Furthermore, we also know that many of the Old Testament prophets spend time in the Judean desert. It was a time to be alone and listen to the voice of God. So that all makes sense. The Holy Spirit leads him to spiritually prepare for his ministry. Yes, this all makes sense until we pay a little closer attention to what Matthew actually tells us. The Spirit led Jesus into that place of solitude and prayer so that he might be, in order that he might be tempted by the devil. Now, the Greek word for devil is diabolos. It means the slanderer. He is the one who comes to smear, malign, and vilify Jesus. He will spread rumors about Jesus that others will believe. He will discredit him, spreading lies and half-truths. He is also called Satan, another of his titles. It means he is the great adversary. He's called the enemy of God. And before Jesus' ministry was to begin, the chief of demons comes to subvert him, to tempt him, to entice him to do something that might smear his ministry before he can begin. Like a politician seeking high government office, if there are secrets in his closet, they can be brought out at the appropriate moment. And to our amazement, we find it was the Holy Spirit who led him to that place of temptation. Now, before we go on, listen to James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, you might say, ha, huh, but that's just playing with words. After all, if the Holy Spirit led Jesus to a place where it was his intention that he should be tempted by Satan. And if the Holy Spirit could have prevented that moment, but deliberately brought him to it, then isn't God really the author of that temptation? Because it is the intent of the Holy Spirit that the Son should be tempted. But that's just the point. The issue before us is the issue of intent. How many of us know that in law, the question of intent is always central? Let's say, for example, that a man is taken to court for tackling an elderly lady in the street and breaking her arm in two ribs. What if we learned that the reason he did that was to steal her purse? But... What if we learned that the reason he did that was to save her life, for an out-of-control car was careening in her direction? In each case, the action is exactly the same, but the intent, well, that changes everything. So consider Genesis 50-20. Joseph is speaking to his brothers about the incident in which he was sold into slavery in Egypt. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In other words, not only did Joseph's brothers sell Joseph into slavery, but God, who stood behind and controlled those events, did the same thing. But the intent was what made those two acts so very different. One wanted to destroy Joseph, and one wanted to save many lives. Intent is everything. And that is what you have in Matthew 4.1. Satan intends to subvert Jesus at the outset of his ministry. That's his 
intent. But we find out that God himself stands behind this event. So what does God intend? I think two things. The first is obvious. God intends, through this temptation, to crystallize in Jesus' mind the great and grand issues of his ministry. Where are the ultimate choices to be made? What constitutes a good Messiah and what constitutes an evil king? These are the issues that Jesus will face in the wilderness, and the Father wants his Son to confront them so that this becomes the starting place for all he does. With that intent, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus to that place. I said there are two things, and here's the second. Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus' experience of temptation in some fashion provides us with what we need when we are tempted. It's as if he says, my child, I also know that the onslaught of temptation feels like his compassion for you is born out of the experience that he personally experienced. And that was the intent of the father to make him our perfect high priest. Let me give you an example of comparison. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction. When I've been through difficult times, I know there's a vast difference between being comforted by someone who has never suffered and one who has. In the same way, when Jesus comes to help us in our temptations, I know that the one who has come to help is the one who knows how excruciatingly difficult it is to resist. And if you say, ah, but he never failed and I do, please understand that it is far more difficult to resist temptation than to merely be tempted. Because when we fall into sin, immediately the pressure of that temptation is gone. It's released like a lanced boil. But when we refuse to give in, the temptation only builds in intensity. So in that sense, no one has ever been tempted like Jesus. Listen, Jesus knows how excruciating and agonizingly unbearable temptation feels. He knows how your heart seems to be crushed by the experience. He knows how desperate it can feel. He comes to us in the most difficult of times, and he knows and he helps. In John's introduction, we're given a glimpse into what Jesus' temptation meant and the significance of how it prepared him for everything he would face in his earthly ministry. What a fascinating thing to consider the centrality of the Holy Spirit's role in leading Jesus to this point, as we see what God's grand scheme was in doing so. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will take us deeper into the text as we examine more closely how Jesus dealt with temptation and the application for us today. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will be celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. One way we'll be celebrating is by inviting you to join us for the Laugh Again fifth anniversary Caribbean cruise. From February 3rd to the 10th, we guarantee a week of laughter, fellowship, spiritual refreshment, music, and so much more upon one of Royal Caribbean's newest incredible ships, the Oasis of the Seas. Is it a time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a time to simply kick back? Enjoy all the sights and sounds of the Caribbean and allow your heart and soul to be ministered to. Well, join Phil Calloway and friends this coming February 3rd to the 10th, 2019 for a vacation of a lifetime. Laugh again, truth bringing laughter to life. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 
or check out laughagain.ca. Have you ever prayed, Oh God, just take this temptation away. And then to your horror, have you noticed that sometimes he's not done so? And sometimes it even feels worse. God allows you to feel at times the full oppression of your struggle with darkness, and we say, why? You find out where your greatest weaknesses lie, and it seems like the evil one is waging war against your soul. Oh, God, take this away from me. Notice first that the temptation did not come from God. Some temptations come from Satan, to be sure, and in some sense, they all do. Some have nothing to do with any innate dark desires, and that was so for Jesus. Well, but some, well, let's let James describe it in James 1, 14 to 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. But we might complain, why doesn't God remove the problem at the source? But we notice from the temptation of Jesus that God has a purpose and intent in all of this. I'm going to come back to that, but at the outset, we should learn that a loving Heavenly Father allows His children to struggle with their own temptations. One day, it won't be like that, but today it is. And so we should learn from Jesus how to respond. We should also learn to rely on the Holy Spirit, believing that if we learn to walk in the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. But for now, let's dive into the actual text. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. What has he been doing? Well, no doubt he's been praying, but I'm convinced that he's also been meditating on the book of Deuteronomy. I say that because I notice that in each case, when he quotes scripture to Satan, he's quoting from Deuteronomy. Clearly, his mind is on that book. But why that book? Well, in Deuteronomy 17, the book gives a very specialized instruction for all future kings of Israel. Let me read from verses 18 and 19. Speaking to the current sitting king in Israel, it says, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes by doing them. So all kings of Israel were required to write out their own personal copy of Deuteronomy. Of course, the gospel writers don't tell us what Jesus did those 40 days, but it does seem logical to me. Jesus is self-conscious of the fact that he is the king destined to sit on David's throne, and the law mandated this activity for kings. John has been announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and Jesus, when tempted, quotes Deuteronomy. It is conceivable, therefore, that even though he most likely did not have a manuscript of Deuteronomy available to copy— that he had committed the entire book to memory, and he may have written out his own copy. But even if we do not know he did this, we do know he is deeply immersed in this book. Okay, we should be ready for our study, but let's consider two more important lessons that will tell us much about how Jesus handled temptation. First, I notice that the tempter came to Christ only after his 40 days of fasting. Now, we've all heard of the idea that Satan came when Jesus was most vulnerable, after he was exhausted from his long ordeal of fasting. But consider that exactly the opposite might be true. 
Perhaps the fasting had not left him spiritually weak, but spiritually strong. What if the fasting had prepared his soul for this very moment? Now, in order to answer that, we need to take a little time and consider the purpose of fasting. Why fast, and is it a command? In the Old Testament, there was only one commanded fast, and it is on the Day of Atonement. There, the word fast is not used. Instead, you find the phrase, you shall afflict yourself, or you shall distress yourself. That's understood as a reference to fasting. And so fasting is seen to reflect the distress in your own soul. That fits very nicely with the theme of the Day of Atonement when all Israel was called upon to remember and confess their sins. And in Psalm 69, verse 10, we read something very similar. There David says, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting. A similar thought. My soul is humbled in the fast. That theme is repeated throughout the Old Testament. Although it was not commanded outside the Day of Atonement, we find God's people taking the initiative in fasting at very specific moments, and they are usually related to the extreme moments in life. So, for instance, during the time of the Judges, when Israel had been twice defeated by the men of Benjamin, Judges 20 verse 26 says that the people of Israel wept before God and fasted. When Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in battle, 1 Samuel 31 verse 13 says that the men of Jabesh Gilead fasted for seven days. After the sin of Israel, after they made an idolatrous calf in the wilderness, Deuteronomy 9.18 says Moses fasted 40 days, which incidentally is the same length of Christ's fast. We could just extend the examples. King Ahab fasted to be forgiven. Nineveh fasted after the preaching of Jonah. Daniel fasted as he confessed the sin of Israel. The entire assembly of Israel fasted after Ezra read the law to them and acknowledged their sin. In fact, if you go forward from our text in Matthew 4 all the way to Matthew 9 verse 14, you remember that the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus to ask him why it is that the Pharisees fast and the disciples of John fasted, but Jesus' disciples don't fast at all. And you remember Christ's answer? He said, can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Please notice that for Jesus, the idea of fasting and the idea of mourning is the same. You fast when your soul is in sorrow. Then Jesus says, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Why? Because they will be longing for the return of Christ. It's their way of saying, my heart is afflicted by the fact that Jesus has not yet come, and I am in sorrow and waiting for the end of this evil age. That's why we fast. Okay, why did Jesus fast for 40 days? Is he mourning for the lost, the people of Israel, and the world like the sheep without a shepherd? Yeah, I'm sure that's one reason why he fasted. His heart is grieved over his mission. But I think he also fasts because he knows the great temptations that lie ahead. And in this way, he afflicts his body and he humbles his soul so he will remember to rely on God and remain obedient to him. I think we sin so very easily because we don't take sin to be as serious as it is. John Piper has said that when we fast, we put our stomach where our heart is. We grieve over our idolatry. We think of how easy it is for us to live for things that grieve God. So rather than continue on in this activity, we allow our body to grieve instead. We take away all the props and we rely on God.
Okay. I said that there are two ways, two means Jesus used to fight temptation. First, he fasted to reflect the distress of his soul. And second, he resisted temptation by memorizing the word, meditating on the word, and drawing upon that experience when the temptation was the worst. So let me speak frankly to all of us who have fallen into sin over and over again. What are you waiting for? Are you looking for God to suddenly zap you and take away your temptation by a snap of his fingers? When are you prepared to grieve and to fast? When are you prepared to finally get serious around your Bible so that when the day of temptation arrives, you can rely on the power inherent in the word? Without those weapons, it's no wonder that you fall into sin with such ease. Let me try to say it another way. If the Son of God needed to fast and to pray and to meditate on the Word, how in the world do you think you'll survive when the tempter comes to you? It is necessary for all of us, finally, to stop dealing so flippantly with sin. The Bible says that the soul that sins will die, and some of us have become so comfortable with the idea of death. But here's the good news. Jesus has provided an example to us so that we can win the battle with temptation. Let's determine to learn from him. John, your message had a lot of impact on me. I was thinking a lot about those small sins you discussed at the beginning, and I was thinking about the importance of fasting, and you sort of turned me on my ear on that one. But I'm just thinking right now about all those accumulated sins as opposed to those large things that we talk about. Are they not the very thing that maybe are the most treacherous? Yeah, I am sure that there are many individual sins that we pay no attention to. But, you know, in reality, there are signals for us that something large is happening. And, and the large thing that's happening is that we're not trusting in God. So for the individual who feels, you know, for instance, that the Holy Spirit is saying to them, you know, I should give to this because, you know, this very thing is going to advance the kingdom. But they say to themselves, yeah, but, but what will that do to me financially? Well, here's the question. Do you trust in God? So there are all sorts of things. I think they all come about as a result that, that we've not taken the promises of God to heart. And there's no greater question that we can ever ask ourselves is this question. When God makes a promise, shall I believe or shall I not? And every single little sin that we might have do come as a result that we haven't believed God when he's spoken. So it's always a question of faith. Thanks, John. Join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Great news. Our international ministry efforts in partnership with Back to the Bible India are making a great inroads. Now the broadcast out of India can be heard not only throughout the majority of that country, but now with our new radio partnership into the countries of Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and parts of Iran, to name a few. And recently, we've been blessed to hear from listeners in Pakistan, Kenya, and Tanzania. In 2018, our budget for maintaining this great ministry partnership will be $75,000. 
This includes the broadcast of the program on air and online, impacting all these countries with the gospel, as well as conducting two more pastor and church leader Bible training conferences in June. Please continue to support our international efforts. So much can be accomplished with your prayers and support. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.